0: Good morning, church. I hope all of you are doing well through this uh, quarantine. Uh, the staff and our Sunday school teachers and our life group leaders are trying to reach out to as much of our congregation as we can just to check in. And, and if you have any prayer needs or any concerns at all, please uh, feel free to, to, let the, uh, congr- or to let us know. and We'd love to uh, follow up and, and to be with you during this, uh, during this quarantine. One thing that this virus um, has made clear is that I'm in the vulnerable age group. Like three or four times a day, I'm reminded that if you're over 65, look out. You know, you're, you're, in, that, you're in that age range, and, 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 and I'm, hardly a day goes by I'm not reminded of that. And, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, why deny it? I might as well face the fact that I'm probably in the last quarter of my life. And so that makes me begin to wonder, how will my life end? Will I make a difference in this world? Did I make some some wrong turns along the way? And, And maybe you've wondered the same thing about your life. One such life was a man by the name of Lucius. He was born December 15th, uh, 37 AD, in uh, the city of Antium on the Mediterranean coast, about 32 miles uh, south of Rome. His parents were Gnaeus and Agrippina, probably two people that you've uh, never heard of. But you may have heard of his great-grandfather, Caesar Augustus. Uh, Lucius' father died when he was three, and his, his mother was exiled on a remote island for plotting to overthrow the emperor, Caligula. The boy was sent to live with his aunt. When Caligula was assassinated by the Praetorian guard, Claudius became the next emperor. And Agrippina poisoned her second husband and then married Claudius, who was also her uncle. She then had Claudius' first wife murdered and she persuaded the the emperor to adopt her son Lucius and he changed his name to Nero, Claudius, Caesar, Drusus, Germanicus. At the age of 16, uh, he married his stepsister Octavia. A few years later, Claudius uh, died probably poisoned by Agrippina And her son became the emperor of Rome at about the age of 16. Well, Agrippina planned to rule through her son, so she poisoned a few more possible rivals, just to be sure, including Nero's stepbrother, Britannicus. Now, for the first few years of of his rule, most historians believe that he started off pretty well, if not somewhat incompetently. But then Nero had his mother killed and then had an affair with Papia Sabina and had his wife Octavia executed on the trumped-up charge of adultery. And from then on, it was downhill. While away on business, a fire broke out in 64 AD in Rome, and Nero rushed back home to to oversee the disaster. Seventy percent of the city burned But it wasn't long before rumors began to circulate that perhaps Nero himself had started the fire. It just seemed a little too convenient for his plans to build a new palace. And so he looked around for somebody to blame, and he found the perfect scapegoat. A new religious uh, group uh, who followed a man named Christus who had been crucified by the Roman governor in Judea, Pontius Pilate, but it was rumored that he had risen from the grave. And members of this religious group, they were generally of the lower class, and they talked about a new kingdom and a new king, which made everybody just a little bit nervous. And they had these secret meals where they ate human flesh and drank human blood. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote that Christians were hated for their enormities and that it was a pernicious superstition. So Nero had a few of the leaders arrested he he arrested he tortured them for the names of other church uh, members and had them arrested and thrown in jail. And over the next several uh, years thousands of these Christians were put to death in the arena. They were fed to wild animals or they were nailed to a cross covered with tar and and set afire to serve as as uh, night lights in the evenings. And while most of the Roman citizens felt that the executions of these Christians was justified, the ghastly way they were put to death began to arouse sympathy among the people. By 68 AD, Nero's support began to crumble. Provisional governors began to denounce him. His praetorian guards uh, charged with protecting him withdrew support, and then the next day the Roman uh, Senate declared him an enemy of the people. And Nero committed suicide. Those were the final days of this man's life. Now contrast that with another man by the name of Saul. He was born to Jewish parents around 5 A.D. in the city of Tarsus in the province of Cilicia. Now, he was born a citizen of Rome, so his father was a citizen as well. Generally, Roman citizenship was only for free-born natives of the city, but as the empire began to grow, they began to loosen up some of those requirements. And so, someplace along the way, uh, Saul's family gained Roman citizenship. Don't know how. Don't know how a Jewish family living in Tarsus, so far away from, from Rome, could gain citizenship. But we do know that this fact alone Put Paul's family, Saul's family, into the social elite of that city as a Roman um, citizen. Paul had three names. He had his forename, he had his family name, and his additional name. But we only know the last one, which was Paulus. His Jewish name was Saul, and his Roman citizenship got him out of hot water several times when it looked like he was going to be beaten or tortured see, every Roman citizen had the right to a fair public trial. We also know that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. And the most famous person from that tribe was the very first king of Israel, whose name also was Saul. And we know that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. His bloodline ran all the way back to to Benjamin, the founder of his tribe. We also know that his parents sent him to Jerusalem as a youth to be educated by uh, Gamaliel, who led a school for students, was a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the most powerful religious and political groups in Jerusalem at the time. And we know that Paul was a member of the Pharisees, and then his occupation was a tent maker. And we also know that Paul and his fellow Pharisees were zealous For keeping the the ancient laws of Israel, and that they believed that those laws should be kept in their totality. There was to be no compromise when it came to keeping the law of God. And so when this man Jesus began his ministry, he he constantly butted heads with these religious leaders over the application of the law, especially around the observance of the Sabbath and, and hanging out with people who did not even try to keep the law. And so, when this man Jesus was finally executed and his body safely entombed, Paul and the others must have felt a sigh of relief. But it was not to last. Three days later, reports began to circulate that Jesus had risen from the grave and had appeared to many of his followers. And then 50 days later, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in a powerful new way. The Apostle Peter preached his very first sermon, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. Miracles and, and supernatural healings begin to take place through the ministry of the church, through the disciples. And then opposition breaks out. A deacon in the church named Stephen is stoned to death and and Paul is there watching the whole thing, approving of the whole bloody mess and he begins to take on this mission of stopping this, this, this religious group called The Way, which is what it was called at that time. But on his way to Damascus to arrest some Christians, he is blinded by a bright light and he hears a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you, Lord? says i am jesus whom you are persecuting and god leads him to a man named ananias he is baptized with water he is baptized with the holy spirit and he receives back his sight and he immediately begins to preach he he runs into opposition and has to leave damascus in the middle of the night he flees to jerusalem but his preaching there in Jerusalem stirs up even more hatred. So the church helps him to escape and he returns to his home in Tarsus. Overnight he becomes, he, he, he goes from being a persecutor of the church to being persecuted. And everywhere this man goes, he stirs up controversy. Well, last week Pastor Mark described Paul's apostolic ministry of how for the next 30 years Paul makes three major trips throughout the empire, planting churches in each of the major cities. But the only city he has not yet visited is the city of Rome. And so it's about 57 or 58 AD, and Paul decides he's going to first visit Jerusalem, and then he's going to go to Rome. But the closer that he gets to Jerusalem, the, the more warning signs along the way that it's going to be a dangerous trip. In fact, a prophet named Agaba shares with Paul a, a prophetic word that he will be arrested in Jerusalem. And everybody pleads with him not to go. But he seems to have this sense of destiny, is, a mission, that it's part of his purpose. And so he says to them, he says, Why are you breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem, For the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure enough, he arrives in Jerusalem. He shows up at the temple. A riot breaks out. Roman soldiers show up to to quell the disturbance. And so bad, the soldiers have to literally carry Paul away from the crowd that wants to kill him. They think he's some kind of Egyptian terrorist. And so they're going to take him to the barracks to, to flog the truth out of him. But... And they, they get them all tied up. They're ready to start beating on him. And, and Paul says, hey, let me ask you a question. Is it legal to beat a, a Roman citizen without a trial? <laughs> it's such a big deal that, that Luke records in Acts 22, the soldiers drew back immediately. They knew it was Ill, illegal to torture a Roman citizen. And it wouldn't be the last time that Paul's Roman citizenship would get him out of hot water. Well, Paul is put in jail. A plot is discovered to kill him. The commander takes him under an armed escort to Caesarea. He has a hearing before Felix, the governor, but he passes him on to the next governor, Festus. And for two years, Paul languishes in a jail until finally he appeals to Caesar himself, and Festus, perhaps eager to get rid of him, says, you have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. And Paul shipped off to Rome. Now the timeline gets a little confusing at this point, but most scholars believe that Paul arrived in Rome about 60 A.D., spent two years under house arrest, was released, probably went on to Spain, returned to Rome, and then was rearrested along with Peter during the roundup of church leaders by the emperor Nero. And this is where we find Paul as he writes his last letter to Timothy. And we find some very intimate words the Apostle Paul has written to his young protege. You see, he's been instructing him on how to, be a, how to be a good pastor, how to be a good church leader. But he realizes that his days on earth are numbered. He is in a Roman prison, and he expects soon to be executed for his faith in Christ. He's so grateful for Timothy. Timothy. He calls him, my dear son. And he encourages Timothy to to use his spiritual gifts and and not to be shy or timid about sharing his faith. He wants Timothy to be be faithful to Christ. And then in chapter 3, he writes these words. He says, Timothy, you know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecution, sufferings, What kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions that I endured, and yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Jesus Christ, he says, will be persecuted. Not maybe, will be. That makes me a little uncomfortable. And then in chapter 4, he begins to sum it all up. He says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. The time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have longed, for his appearing. So Paul's in his final days and he has total confidence in how he has lived his life. He know, has no remorse because he knows that in heaven he's going to receive this crown of righteousness from God. Indeed, he believes that all of us, all of those who long for Christ's appearing will receive the victor's crown as their reward for living a righteous life. What would that be like to come to the end of your life and to have this kind of confidence that you've lived your life well, that you have no regrets? How did Paul arrive in that place? Well, Paul compares his life to a race, and I can relate to that. I've been a runner all of my life. I used to run in marathons, and for you non-runners, that's like 26 miles, Today, I feel really fortunate if I can run two or three miles. But if I've learned anything about running, it's simply this, that consistent daily training is absolutely crucial. And you need to have a plan, and you need to stick with it in summer heat, and the winter frost, and in the rain, the fog, and the snow. And especially on those days when you don't feel like getting out of bed. On those days when the last thing you want to do is, is to put on those running shoes, you do it anywhere, beca- anyway because you understand that's the only way that you're going to hit the finish line come race day. And what I've discovered is that life isn't any different. That if you want to cross the finish line come judgment day, there are some things you need to know and there's some things you need to do. And you start with having the end in mind. You see, before you start training, you need to know what the goal is so you'll know when you cross the finish line. And here's what I think it is. It, it's becoming like Christ. It's a process of becoming like Christ in, in our thoughts, and in our feelings, and in our lifestyle. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, it says, To this you were called, to this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow Him. In His steps. You see, when I, when I get to heaven, I don't think that Jesus is going to ask me how well I memorized the Bible. I don't think He's looking for us just to be filled with cognitive facts. It's not just about our, 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 our intellectual development, but it's about character development. And so if I know the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, but I live like a devil, guess what? I, I'm not crossing the finish line. I'm not reaching my goal. Now, the thing is that God is totally committed to your spiritual maturity. God is totally committed to that happening in your life. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, he says, For those that God foreknew, he also predestined, listen, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. You will grow into the likeness of Christ if you want to. Now, I think it requires some intentionality, requires a commitment, Requires some work and effort and time. Yes, God does it in you, but it requires a cooperation from us. We need a plan to make it happen, and then we need to follow through. You see, it's kind of like physical exercise. If you want to get in shape, you have to make a commitment to it. You have to have a plan. You may even need a trainer, someone experienced to help you develop a plan and then encourage you to follow through. You see, getting in good physical shape is, is not automatic. In fact, just the opposite. I discovered that after you pass 20, it's pretty much downhill from that day on. <laughs> Unless you're proactive, and it's the very same thing in your spiritual fitness program. For me, that means developing some habits. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of 1 Timothy chapter 4, says this, Exercise daily in God. No spiritual fat flabbiness, please. He goes on to say, workouts in the gymnasium are useful, but a disciplined life in God is far more so, making you fit both today and forever. See, we've got to have our, our goal set on eternity. Isn't that great? Spiritual maturity is learning some spiritual exercises and then sticking with it until they become habits. For me, that's, that's prayer. It's, it's reading and meditating upon the Scripture. It's just being part of a, of a small group. It means regular worship. It means finding a way to serve others and, and then sharing my faith. And it's a process that takes time. It takes perseverance. There are no shortcuts. You can't give up when the going gets hard. And it will. Life is hard. Paul wrote in Romans 5, verse 3, he says, We also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, character, hope. So Paul kept his focus on the mission, on his purpose. He knew he couldn't surrender to his difficult circumstances, and so he chose to surrender instead to his mission. He wasn't concerned about his imprisonment. He was concerned about spreading the gospel of Christ. He didn't complain about the unfair treatment that he had received. He didn't ask for a a petition drive demanding his release. He was only thinking about how God was going to use this incarceration for God's glory. And so Paul wrote in Philippians, he says, Because of my chains... Not, not in spite of my change, he says, most of the brothers and sisters have been made more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, dare to speak the word with greater boldness and without fear. You see, when we stay focused on our purpose, everything else begins to take its proper place. So let me ask you a question What's your purpose? What's your mission? Why are you here? Why did God place you on this planet? And what are you willing to die for? You see, until you and I have a purpose for our lives that's worth living and dying for, we're going to live our whole life without any direction or meaning. Think how easy it would have been for Paul to be thinking, here I am in my prison cell. My life is about to come to an end. I've spent the last 30 years of my life being chased uh, out of town after town, people wanting to kill me. I've been beaten. I've been, I've been stoned and, and whipped and, and shipwrecked. I have, I have labored and I have toiled to spread the gospel, often without sleep, cold and na- naked, hungry and thirsty. And how easy it would have been for Paul in that prison cell to look back over all of this and to feel like a failure that it had all been for naught. Like nothing went right. I have no family. I have no home. I have no bank account. I have nothing. But he doesn't. Paul believes that it's been worth it all. That he has followed God's plan for his life. That he has fought the good fight. That he has finished the race. And that he's kept the faith. When Nero had... Paul executed about 66 AD. Paul's life ended on a chopping block in a prison cell. And yet his influence has been felt by billions of people to this day. Paul ended his life well. Two years after Nero killed Paul, he took his own life. Nero had all the wealth, all the power, all the prestige, more than any other person in human history. And yet he died at the age of 29, a lonely, paranoid tyrant. And no one was sad to see him go. You see, God put Paul on this earth for a purpose, and he has put you on this earth for a purpose. And that purpose gave Paul strength and courage to never give up. My friends, once you discover your purpose, once you begin to understand why God put you here, it will give you amazing endurance to finish the race of your life in hope and in victory. We start with the end in mind. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the lives that you have given us. We thank you for the purpose and the mission that you've bestowed upon us. Give us, Lord, courage to face each and every day in the power of your Holy Spirit and to live our lives in complete surrender to you and to your will for our life, we pray. Amen.